Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 37, Pope Julius I. <laughs> this is a name that kind of hangs around the church a little bit, and the Julii of the, of the Catholic popes are going to kind of put themselves on the map in a few different ways. So it's kind of one of those names that when you hear, we're going to get at least somebody a little bit memorable. And uh, I'll sizzle this episode a little bit by telling you that this Julius is known as the Defender of Orthodoxy. Aww. That's, what a... Well, I mean, considering everything that's happening right now, it makes sense, right? Yeah, we're we're dealing with some Aryans and so on. Yeah, so let's jump into his early life. Uh, Julius was born in Rome. And his father's name was Rusticus, so... I love that name. <laughs> you didn't like Priscus? No, Rusticus sounds like an adventurer. <laughs> well, he is now an adventurer, so That's there you go. That's my new D&D character. <laughs> Rusticus. Oh, man. He would have been in the church through the papacies of Sylvester and Mark, and maybe Militiades as well. So he was around to witness the transformation of the church and the legalization, the expansion, shift from obscure cults to religion that now had pretty far-reaching political consequences. So witness to all of that. But we can't just insert the standard, entered the church, made himself distinctive, rose through the ranks, selected Pope narrative for Julius, because we have a somewhat unique situation where we don't really actually have an explanation for. Our previous pope, boring Pope Mark, died on October 7th, 336, and there is a four-month sede vacante before the next pope is elected. This is weird. We have no official reason that we can point to for this gap, and the church isn't in a position where it's legally prevented by the empire or persecutions to elect a new pope. So this is unusual. Maybe they just couldn't make a decision. Well, okay, so there is some idea here. There, There is the potential that maybe things were so chaotic with the shift in the attitudes of the empire, like vis-a-vis Aryan and anti-Aryan controversy, but I mean, this this doesn't, this isn't something that we've seen hinted at that it would actually hold up the election of a pope. So again, you know, if they're not making up their minds, why? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately for the whole credibility thing, the only source that offers us a suggestion for why this is, is the Liber Pontificalis. Oh, no. Its entry on Pope Julius indicates that he might have been swept up in some pre-papal drama in a way, because it says he endured many tribulations and was in exile ten months. And after the death of this Constantius, he returned in glory to the seat of Blessed Peter the Apostle. So, this version would have us understand that the Sede Vacante was on account of Julius's exile, and that maybe the bishops of Rome were essentially waiting for Julius to return in order to be elected pope. So, if this is the case, there must be something fairly extraordinary about him that they're willing to wait. 
basically. This also leads to the question, why is Julius in exile? Yeah. We don't know. Uh, we don't know who exiled him. <laughs> I thought this was the good time where we had sources. <laughs> um, we're not quite there yet. Um, it's been better, but yeah, we don't, we don't know. We don't know who exiled him. We don't know whether it's the Empire or the Church or why, what the context is. Uh, the only source where this is mentioned is the Liber Pontificalis, so... Again. <laughs> yeah, super entirely speculative, and we don't know why. But we do know there is definitely a four-month gap between the popes, so all we can point to is maybe exile, so... We're we're going to accept that and just start with Pope Julius being a man of mystery because that's tantalizing, so. <laughs> tantalizing? <laughs> we have to have some tantalizing Popey man, so. Either way, on February 6th of 337, the Sede Vacante was ended and he was made Pope. Now, <laughs> before we deal with his papacy right off the bat, it's time for the Athanasius interlude. <laughs> oh. To be fair, after you've listened to our excellent jingle, uh, this Athanasius interlude is going to take up a good chunk of the episode this week, mainly because Pope Julius gets directly involved with it all, so... Less of an interlude and more of the entire thing. It's, it's going to be an in-and-out interlude while, while we do some narrative structure. So, to recap... Athanasius had been exiled at the Council of Tyre in 335, in 335 by the Arians, led by Eusebius of Nicomedia, which was allowed and supported by Constantine because Constantine had been influenced enough that he was no longer entirely in support of the Council of Nicaea. Constantine had been growing cozier and cozier with the Arians in the East, particularly because of his ever closer relationship with Eusebius of Nicomedia who took up the Arian leadership after Arius had died. And he's doing a much better job spreading the theology than Arius ever had. As Jonathan Adley from the History of the Cops podcast said so well, he said, Without Eusebius, Arianism would have died quietly. Perhaps Eusebius should have died quietly. He should have, but he won't, and he's going to cause lots of problems. Oh, someone on Twitter asked us today what the actual, what the proper collective term for Eusebii was, and I decided that it would be an exasperation of Eusebii, so. Ah, yes, that's a good one. <laughs> it got a good laugh, so thank you for, for making a good joke this morning. <laughs> uh, no longer was Constantine entirely convinced of the Hemusian philosophy of God and Christ being consubstantial and co-eternal. And he didn't want to see the Arians, who were still arguing that Christ was created by God and therefore was less divine and less eternal, he didn't want to see them anathematized or expelled for their viewpoints anymore. He's like, just settle down. Now, fast forward to February 6th of 337. Our man Julius is made Pope. And by May, Emperor Constantine the Great the man responsible for the change of fortune for the Christians, dies. Oh, bye. Yeah. And so maybe for like a hot second, the Orthodox Christians breathed a little sigh of relief, thinking that, okay, he's gone, maybe things are going to get back on track, but um, no, 
Because that's not going to happen. And things are going to be more unsettled than before. And on top of all of this, by the way, what's going on in the church, Constantine's succession plan is a mess. It is like a hot garbage dumpster fire. <laughs> so <laughs> he's he's going to be succeeded by Constantine II, Constantius II, and Constans, amongst two other cousins that kind of flit around. So you're going to hear a lot of different names coming up that are Constans kind of <laughs> names. So Okay. I'll do my best to keep it clear, but for the most part in our understanding, what you need to know is that Constantius II was a heavy Arian supporter, and Constantine II and Constans lent towards the orthodoxy. So all these brothers are going to fight amongst themselves for a long time. It's extra messy. We'll be engaging with all of them in our story. And if you get lost along the way, since we're using the emperors more as like bookends than the central figures of our story, obviously, then supplement these episodes with the totalis rankium ones on these emperors. So after Constantine's death, his son, Constantine II, who, besides being co-emperor with his father, had also been the commander of Gaul, he allows Athanasius to return to his bishopric in Alexandria. Remember, Athanasius had been exiled to Treves, which is in Gaul, so it's under his jurisdiction to say, yeah, it's, it's, you can go back. Now, whether he did this for the genuine support of the Nicene Creed or because it would aggravate his brother Constantius II is a little bit unclear, but it happened, and Athanasius was allowed to return. And when Constantius II finds out about it, he almost immediately has Athanasius re-exiled. <laughs> so this man gets home, and then he's told, nope, you gotta leave again. So this time he's like, oh, come on. So he goes to Rome to appeal to Pope Julius, who gave him refuge and began the process to reinstate him to his bishopric. So Julius is already directly involved with our interluding man. Get him back his bishopric. Well, he would like it back. However, while he has been in exile, the position of Patriarch of Alexandria has not remained vacant. Oh, so the Arians who were establishing dominance had put an Arian into the position called Pistis and sent on... <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I sometimes I read these old Roman names and for me it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's a dude. And then I forget that you're going to have a reaction to them <laughs> because they're not as familiar to you. So Pistis is currently the Bishop of Alexandria, and the Arians had sent envoys to Pope Julius to convince him to accept Pistis to the position on the grounds of the decrees of the Council of Tyre in 335, which we talked about last week, which is where Athanasius was originally deposed. So they felt that since he had been deposed by the emperor, that the Pope needed to accept this new appointment because the Synod was a valid deposition, according to law, basically. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the anti-Arian bishops very much disagree, especially those in Alexandria, whose envoys brought a letter to the Pope defending Athanasius and the rights to his position. So... We're at a stalemate. Neither of the groups were prepared to yield on the issue, 
And so in 341, Julius proposes a new synod to take place to put the matter to rest. You know, let's just, you know, we've had this synod. Things are kind of a little bit messy. Why don't both of you from both sides come to Rome, put your arguments forward, and we can put everything to rest? And importantly, because Julius had been willing to call the synod and address the issue of deposed leaders, the synod also drew quite a lot of attention from other anti-Aryan theologians who had been forced out of their positions in other places. So Athanasius is not the only man who has experienced such a thing to happen to him. We have Marcellus of Ancyra, Asclepius of Gaza, and Paul of Constantinople. So they come as well. And this synod convenes and determines that Athanasius and the others like him maintained the right and true orthodox position, were innocent of the charges that had been laid against them, and that they should be immediately reinstated to their bishopric. Word of the Pope. All right. This should be relatively easy. Yes, yes. And, and perhaps it would have been if we were to ignore the fact that the Eastern bishops decided not to attend Julius's council and held their own council at Antioch instead, led by Eusebius of Nicomedia. Eusebius, you little turd. <laughs> and, and by the way, just so we're clear, the divide between the Arians and the anti-Arians is pretty much geographical at this point. So if I say Eastern bishops, we're talking about the Arians. And Western bishops are the anti-Aryans, just for a little bit of variance in terminology there. And Athanasius, being such a strong anti-Aryan out in the East, in Alexandria, is why this is such a powerful issue for the church at this point, because the Western bishops want him in the East to suppress Arianism and convert people to proper orthodoxy while the Eastern bishops want him out so that they can maintain their stronghold of Arianism over there. So that's why this is so important. So, anyways, this protest council of Eastern bishops decided that, okay, this whole thing with Pistis being the bishop of Alexandria instead of Athanasius, this is not going well. So let's get rid of him and put a new man in for the position. And so they get rid of Pistis, and rather than giving it back to Athanasius, they elect George of Cappadocia, and they double down on their exile of Athanasius, despite the fact that there's a synod in Rome being called right now that says he's innocent, and it's his bishopric, and the bishops in Alexandria are primarily supporters of Athanasius. We gotta get the Pope to do his primacy thing here. And that's exactly what he does. He writes to the Arian bishops and he condemns them for not attending the council. And he says, regardless of the doctrinal differences between them, the synod has always been the method that the church uses to resolve differences and problems. And by flouting that, they were devaluing the traditions of Christianity. So... Even if they had believed that Athanasius was entirely guilty of all those witchcraft, murder, things that they had accused him of, and that he was entirely not worthy of the post, they should have come to the council to make that point. He says to them, Can you be ignorant that this is the custom, that we should be written to first, so that from here what is just may be defined? So... This is the epistle of Julius to Antioch. 
It's uh, Epistle 22. He's he's laying it down. He He's pointing out the privacy of Rome and the long-standing tradition of the Pope as the head of the church. And even though it may not be at his strongest point at this given moment, he's defending his rights and defending not only himself, but the synods of the church and the procedure by which the church makes decisions. So he's openly calling out the Arians who are trying to bypass legitimate channels to deal with their conflicts. You guys are being a sneaky sneak, and I'm calling you out on your bullshit. Ignorant. They're, they're not being very good right now. So following this, the emperors, at this time we're talking Constantius II, and Constans, who had defeated Constantine II by this time, he's not around anymore, so now we have Constantius II and Constans. They get involved. Constans was definitely more of an anti-Aryan sympathizer, and he starts pushing his brother Constantius to work with him to sort this issue out. You know, they want, they want to put it to rest, and since the two competing synods uh, come to nothing but to reaffirm each side's respective position to themselves, they decide to have a council of all bishops. And surely this will do a lot better, because it's being called by the emperors, right? Nope. And they're saying, like, let's just look at all these cases of de depositions, we'll deal with them all, we'll de you know, we'll look at everyone, clarify all of the contradictory doctrine, and we can all be on the same page. Emperors can agree east and west, church can agree east and west, sunshine and rainbows. And this council was to be had at Sardica in Dacia, which is modern-day Sofia in Bulgaria. And it was set for 343. Constantius II sends two representatives for himself, a man called Strategius Musononius and Hestius of Antioch. Those are some names. And Pope Julius gave his assent to the council by sending ambassadors to represent him, called Archidamus and Philoxenes, a, and a deacon called Leo, as well as nearly 300 Western bishops who attend for this council from Hispania and Gaul and Britain, and I've written Gaul twice here, and Italy and Egypt, and oh my gosh, I've written and Italy. Gaul again. Yeah, so I wrote, this, this was some bad note taking. It says Hispania. Gaul, Britain, Gaul, Italy, Egypt, Italy, Syria, <laughs> <laughs> and more. Clearly, I was looking at a list of bishops and just kept pulling. <laughs> this council was to be overseen by Hosius of Cordova, just like the Council of Nicaea had been. There's lots and lots of bishops here. It's being overseen by one of the most official and senior members of the church. And it should be a good thing. Except that the 70-ish Arian bishops refuse to attend or walk out. Why are they like this? So, yeah, it's thought that due to the heavy presence of Western bishops, they knew that they were immediately at a disadvantage, so they left or they abstained, and they basically made the argument that one council couldn't just overturn the decisions of a previous council, like that the Council of Tyre. They tried to do that already. Yeah, so it's not a strong argument, but they're basically saying, no, you can't overturn the Council of Tyre. We can overturn that synod at Rome, but you can't do it to the one that deposed Athanasius. Again, they set up a rival council, this time in Philippopolis, which is the greatest city name. I love it. Philippopolis. <laughs> can we visit there? 
So today, Filipopolis is known as uh, Plovdiv in Bulgaria. So, I mean, we, we, we could go to Filipopolis. It's just no longer Filipopolis. Dang. Probably sighing pretty heavily at this point, the Western bishops go ahead with the council at Sardica. Because what, what else are they going to do? Yeah, I mean, they're already there. So they determine that Athanasius was once again entirely innocent of the charges being laid against him, and he was ordered to be restored to his bishopric, along with Marcellus and Asclepius, to their bishoprics, respectively. They also briefly discussed amending the Nicene Creed, but this issue got tabled fairly quickly because the creed was supposed to be universal orthodoxy, and they didn't really want to give the Arians any additional ammunition to criticize it already more than they were. Makes sense. So instead, they issue a set of official canons, and we're going to go into detail before we get to the Philippopolis Council so that we can compare. Not all of them are, are super important for the moment, so we're just going to go over a handful of them. So this is what matters right now. So the first canon says, Corruption must be done away with from its foundation. And it implements a prohibition on bishops moving around from the city of their ordainment to larger cities. Basically, they, they should be serving in the place where they were ordained to serve, rather than seeking out increased power and ambition by going to larger cities. Mm, yeah. And, and we can see why they want to limit the movement of bishops, because a charismatic leader might think that he's more deserving of like a, a, an important city like Rome or Alexandria or Antioch and then cause all these horrible divides. So, you know, we've also seen Arian bishops who are trying to extend their influence by taking over the most important sees that they can get their hands on to spread their viewpoint. So if they're not allowed to move around like that, that would put an end to that. And then Canon 6 builds on this and clarifies that bishops should only be ordained out of necessity to an area, and that area needs to be populous because small towns don't need a bishop they can be overseen by a single presbyter so let's not just make bishops for the sake of making bishops makes sense yeah this would prevent the naming of bishops in an area as a mean of increasing influence in the area or like stacking the odds the bishop of this one alleyway mm -hmm. canon 10a also puts further restrictions on what it takes to be a bishop including minimum roles that were required first it says that no man could be ordained as a bishop before fulfilling the ministry of a reader, the office of deacon and presbyter, which take a good amount of time and, quote, will test his faith, his discretion, gravity, and modesty. Therefore, men whose life has been tested and their merit approved by length of time are the only ones who should be ordained a bishop. And then Canon 8 declares that bishops should not go to the courts of the Roman emperors for any purpose other than to petition for the good of the church or for seeking pardon for injustice. And the only exception is that for this is put in there is if they've been strictly invited or summoned by the emperor. <laughs> not for petty bull****. Don't go to the emperor for petty bull****. And and this one seems like it could be a deliberate shot to someone like Eusebius of Nicomedia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, use that influence. So churchmen should not be plying the influence with the emperors, especially for personal gain. There are also a set of appeal canons that have specific weight to what we've been talking about and the reasoning for the council, because they clearly define the procedure for what was to actually progress when bishops had been accused of wrongdoing or heresy. 
and to declare that papal intervention superseded everything else when it comes to the condemnation of bishops. So bishops shouldn't be judging other bishops from other provinces, appeals to the Pope always overruled, and uh, we're, we're going to read these specific canons because they read pretty clearly as being against the Arians' practice in the East. This is where we're just going to get into a little bit of actual text because it's important. Canon 3b. If a bishop is the complainant in a case against another bishop of his province, neither the complainant nor the accused can ask a bishop from another province to judge the case. Makes sense. Canon 3c. If a bishop is convicted of an offense by a verdict in a case, and if the convicted bishop objects to the verdict and seeks recourse by asking for a consideration, then the bishops who judge the case, the trial court, should honor the memory of the Saint of Saint Peter the Apostle and write to the Bishop of Rome about the case. If the Bishop of Rome, the court of second instance, decides that the case should be retried, then let it be done and let him appoint judges. If the Bishop of Rome decides the case should not be retried, then he shall confirm the verdict. Papal primacy. Canon 4. If a bishop is sentenced with a deposition in a case by a verdict of those bishops who have seized in neighboring places, and if the deposed bishop announces that his case is to be examined in the city of Rome, then the execution of the sentence is suspended, in that a replacement bishop shall not be ordained to the see of the deposed bishop until after the case has been determined in the judgment of the bishop of Rome. So if you depose Athanasius, you can't stick someone else in his place until the Pope says so. Canon 7. If a bishop is deposed from his office by bishops of his region acting as a court, and if the deposed bishop takes refuge with the Bishop of Rome and seeks recourse by asking the Bishop of Rome for a retrial, and if the Bishop of Rome decides that the case should be retried, then the Bishop of Rome may write to the bishops of a neighboring province to investigate and conduct a retrial. The deposed bishop may ask of the Bishop of Rome to delegate priests to the retrial at his discretion the Bishop of Rome can send priests acting as legates with his authority to serve as judges in cases where the Bishop of Rome decides that the bishops of a neighboring province alone are insufficient. You started running out of air at the end there. Bishop, 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 bishop. They're just straight up being like, no, we're going to make rules because you did this thing. Yeah, you guys are messing it up, so now we need to be clear. Okay, here's the longest one. Canon 17. If a bishop is quick to anger and excommunicates a priest or deacon hastily, then the priest or deacon has recourse by asking neighboring bishops as a court of second instance for a hearing and review of his case. Provisions may be made that an innocent man be not condemned or deprived of communion with the church. Nevertheless, the priest or deacon will remain excluded from communication until this case is decided. A hearing should not be denied. The neighboring bishops, as a court of second instance, may either approve or revise the sentence. Since a bishop should not suffer wrong or insult if the neighboring bishops, as a court of second instance, observe arrogance and pride in the priest or deacon, then they may admonish the priest or deacon to obey a bishop whose commands are proper and right. A bishop ought to manifest love and charity to his clergy, and ministers ought to obey their bishop. So if your bishop is a dickhead, you can appeal. So those are the ones that are important. So these canons get sent to Julius, signed by the majority of the bishops in attendance for his approval, which obviously he approves because this is exactly what he wants. 
And he adds to this that a specific canon that says to refuse to attend or walk out of a legitimate church council was an excommunicable offense. Uh, he excommunicates some of the Eastern bishops who were over there having the council in Philippopolis. And Julius is making it really clear that he's not happy with them in any way. So then he takes these canons and disseminates them all across the empire in Greek and in Latin to Alexandria, Egypt, Libya, so that they get everywhere. So that's what happened at Sardica. Big council, huge precedent set, real clear rules put in place. And while this is going down at Sardica, the Eastern bishops are having their own council, and it seems that their whole purpose was to pass canons that undo anything that they thought might be happening at Sardica. (laughs) So the bishops band together, going so far as to ensure that they all stayed together in the same place, so that none of the lesser bishops would be drawn away or influenced not to participate. And in their council, they not only determined that Athanasius was just guilty and should remain deposed, they also wrote their own creed in a rejection of the Nicene Creed and decided that the word homoousius was anathema. So in their creed, they introduce a new word, which is anomoian, which means not similar, to discuss the difference in natures between the Father and the Son, And for anyone who would cite or follow the Nicene Creed would be excommunicable. And then they professed excommunications against many of the notable Western bishops that they knew were at the Council of Sardica. I guess who else got an excommunication from them? The Pope? The Pope. (laughs) You can't do that. Yeah, no, they, uh, they don't have the power to do that, but they are, um, they are trying to make their message clear. Also, since they went back and confirmed this creed at another meeting of Sirmium, their Arian-style creed that kind of came up against the Nicene Creed would be known as the Creed of Sirmium rather than Philippopolis. At least it doesn't get the cool name. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, so if we come back and we reference the Creed of Sirmium, it's the one that was written at Philippopolis. And uh, if the Western bishops and the Pope hadn't already been worthy of excommunication in the eyes of the Arian bishops... They also agreed that since Pope Julius had declared that walking out of or not attending a legitimate council was excommunicable, they decide that if you stay in a false council, i.e. a council meant to overturn decisions made in previous councils, that's also excommunicable. So therefore, Sardica was not legitimate, neener, neener, neener. What little jerks. (laughs) Yeah, this is an interesting time period in history. So, uh, needless to say, the fact that the council had set off to reunify the church and clarify contradictory doctrine and bring harmony (laughs) means that everything was a failure. So, I mean, the Western bishops felt that they had done the right thing. The Eastern bishops felt that they had done what they needed to do so that absolutely nothing positive was accomplished at this point. Yes, we have the counts, the canons of the Council of Sardica will become official ratified church law in various ecumenical councils of the future, like the Council of Chalcedon in 451 and the Quintussex Council in 692 and the Council of Nicaea II in 787. But that's not going to do anything for the moment. 
the only thing, really, that the Council of Sardica and the Council of Philippopolis actually accomplished was that by their mutual excommunications of one another, this is like the first official schism between the Eastern and Western Church. Major thing, major precedent, not a good one, one that will eventually become permanent. And even though the Council of Sardica had declared that Athanasius was innocent and to be restored to his positions, the Arians were really clear that they were not going to let that happen. So they go to Constantius II, and they ask him to threaten Athanasius with death if he returns to Alexandria. That's a little harsh. Yeah, so uh, he's not able to go back. So he goes to the other emperor, Constans, who sympathizes with him, and presses his brother again to lift the death threat on Athanasius and let him go back to his bishopric. But Constantius is all like, nope, and it's not till 346, with the death of the Arian-appointed George of Cappadocia, who is there replacing him, and with Emperor Constans showing some force by moving some troops into the border of Constantius's territory, that Constantius starts to consider actually letting Athanasius come back. But only if Athanasius comes to meet him. Oh. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Athanasius is not keen to go and meet the emperor who just had a death threat over his head for a couple of years. Um, he, he, he hears, it's a trap, it is a trap. So, uh, it actually takes three letters of encouragement from his supporter, Emperor Constans, for him to actually do it. He, he is gonna go, and he goes to meet with Constantius too. And Constantius II actually allows him to go back to his bishopric. Surprise! <laughs> no death? No, not death. No, he actually gets to go back. And Pope Julius writes a letter at this point to Athanasius and his flock in Alexandria to congratulate him on his restoration. And there, there is a copy of this letter in a great book that contains all of Julius's extant writings called The Correspondence of Pope Julius by Glenn L. Thompson available on JSTOR and in fragments on Google Books. So you can actually read that stuff. So this is where we're going to leave Athanasius for now, triumphantly returning to his bishopric for real. Next time, we're going to have a lot to talk about that with uh, our successor pope, but we'll have to check in with him then. So, you know. But around the same time as Athanasius's actual restoration, two Arian bishops who had been excommunicated by Sardica, Eursacius and Valens of Mercia now come to Pope Julius and they formally recant their Arian beliefs <gasps> and they get readmitted to the church and restored to their bishoprics. Well, I hope that wasn't just like a lie, like Eusebius was like, I'm going to pretend. Send spies. It, it doesn't actually seem to be. It seems like this was a legitimate thing and at least if there was going to be no peace, there were there were two men who decided better of it. I just, I, I don't trust Eusebius. <laughs> I know, right? He didn't sign the paper and didn't get exiled, so he lied to begin with. He could be sending spies. He could be sending spies. I wouldn't put it past him. He, he is a, a thorn in the side of the church for a long time. But now that we've left Athanasius and the whole Council of Sardica behind, we need to move on because we have more to talk about with Julius. He's not quite done yet, even though he actually succeeded in, in all of this. So. 
Pope Julius has another major contribution to the church, and this is a big one and a lasting legacy unto this day. You know, it's it's going to be it's going to be hard because we might even have to give points in two categories for this one because well, once we get into it it'll make sense. So, in 350, Pope Julius I officially chose December 25th as the date for Christmas. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Uh, more accurately at the time, it would have been officially titled the Feast of the Nativity. But yeah, he's the one who picked the day for Christmas. Now, interestingly, up until this point, Christmas wasn't really celebrated. The first record of any Christmas celebration that we have comes from 336. So this is a really new conception at this point. And part of this is down to the fact that in early Christianity, birthdays were not really celebrated or a point of focus because the church was all about death days and saints days were given drastically more importance and significance because they were dates in which an individual would go on to the eternal heaven. If you want to know more about this whole birthday slash death day thing, the Why Is That podcast has an episode on birthdays where they discuss all of this. So that would be a good one to check out. Now, Unlike the popular thought that making Christmas on December 25th all had to do with just making the holiday coincide with the pagan Roman festival Saturnalia, which happened December 17th to 23rd, this isn't entirely true. It's partially true, but it's definitely not the whole story. I mean, for one, if we wanted to be more specific and practical and just kind of take over a pagan holiday... There is also the Dies Natalis Solis Invicti, which actually happens on December 25th and is the birthday of the unconquered sun and, you know, pagan worship of Mithra or Sol Invictus. But associating the Nativity of Christ with the already established Roman traditions was just one piece of the puzzle. And it's the piece that gets all the credit, but it's not actually the whole truth. One article I read by Deborah Booten McCoy on Julius suggests another reason for the choice of the date. Apparently, as she says, it was a common practice of thought that great men only ever lived in whole round years, never a fraction of a year. And therefore, a great man would only die on the anniversary of his conception. Then why isn't his birthday on Easter? Oh no, conception. I don't. Yeah, my no, brain. but you're, you're, you're getting there. Um, Jesus is the greatest and most perfect man of all, so he must have died on the anniversary of his conception. So even though you go back to the first Pope episode we did on Peter, where we discussed the historical consensus of the date of crucifixion being April 7th, there is some thought that at this time in history, they had calculated back to determine the date to be March 25th, and therefore the Immaculate Conception of Mary must have been March 25th, and so his birthday would have been exactly nine months later on December 25th, because God's Immaculate Conception would not be a day early or a day late, darling. Oh, yeah. This is a thing. It's weird. And so, according to the Chronicle of John of Nicum, the date for the Nativity was assigned, quote, from census documents brought by Titus to Rome. 
So perhaps something in the documents gave them insight. You know, maybe there was an actual documenting of the death of Christ or listing the dates of Passover for that year or something that would give them something to calculate from. Also, that is like the most male calculation of a pregnancy ever. It really is. And I mean, it's so bizarre because if this is a thought process... I could totally imagine, like, people who thought they were great men of the era trying to calculate back to their date of conception so that they knew what their death day would be. Like, I don't know. I, I couldn't find another source on this idea of great men living in whole years. Uh, there was nothing that jumped out at me when I was looking for this. But I did tweet at the author of this article uh, to Deborah, and maybe she will get back to me at some point. This is a, a couple... A good couple weeks ago that I wrote this and tweeted at her and I haven't heard back yet. But maybe she will. So maybe we can learn a little bit more about this whole year theory. It's so bizarre. Because, like, pregnancies are 40 weeks, which means they're not exactly nine months at all. No, no. But um, th that is exactly how the physicians of the time would have thought of it. How manly is your math? So manly. <laughs> Male math, yes. <laughs> so we're going to finish up quickly with, you know, the, the little stuff he did. Julius also ordered the building of two basilicas and three cemeterial churches during his papacy, the most famous being the completion of the Basilica di Santa Maria in Trastevere, which was started all the way back in Pope Calixtus's time. It finally gets finished. Uh, the cemeterial churches he built were on the Porta Road, the Via Aurelia, and the Via Flaminia which was on the tomb of St. Valentine, and this was completely unknown to post-antiquity until its rediscovery in the 19th century. He is also said to have strongly encouraged the use of lists of bishops and saints and martyrs that had been started by Pope Mark that we discussed last week and ensured all official acts of the church were recorded and preserved, which will become so important when a later pope makes an absolute ass of himself by misquoting them. One source I read suggested that by preserving all of these church doctrine in record, that this made Pope Julius, quote, essentially the founder of the Vatican archives. Interesting. Pretty big stretch. So Pope Julius dies on April 12th, the 352, from presumably natural causes. He was buried in the catacombs of Clepidius, which was not on the Via Appia for once, but rather on the Via Aurelia. Eventually, his remains were moved to the Santa Maria in Trastevere at an undetermined time, which is the church that had been built by Calixtus that he had finished, and it's where Calixtus's bones were moved during the 9th century. So, And seeing as Calixtus had also been buried at the catacombs of Calepidius, maybe they were, maybe they were moved at the same time. We don't know. There's no evidence to support this. This is only something I happened to notice when I was doing my research. So, buried in the same place. Ended up in the second, the secondary place that is the same. Possible. But that's Julius. And we need to rate him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, you're not feeling poor Julius? <laughs> no, Christmas is cool and all. But, you know. Well, let's have a look at this. Papatum infallium. Look, even though the Council of Sardica only served to make things worse in the controversy at the time, it is going to give canons that will be ratified in the future, some good, some bad. 
you know, he, he doesn't come to unity with the Aryans. So we have to consider that. And this will lead to the eventuality that Constantius II is going to be extra hard on the anti-Aryans and force them to accept Arians in the church. However, Julius' support of Athanasius will come up again in the future at the First Council of Constantinople in 381. So the legacy of Julius is one of a strong defender who believed in intervention and procedure. And that's really important. Like, he was really about making sure that things were done properly in the church. He defends orthodoxy. He defends papal primacy in an era where it potentially would have been easier to just let those things slide. He supports Athanasius. He gives him refuge. He holds the Council of Sardica for him. He tries for unity. For whatever reason, it's a side note mentioned that during the pontificate of Julius, there is a rapid increase in the number of Christians in Rome. So there's that. There's the Christmas thing. This is huge impact on the church. And uh that's probably going to get some points in Seculari impact him too. Yeah. And also, just as a little side geeky note slash, you know, sizzle for so far in the future, Pope Julius II takes this name because he's he, he's very fond of the name Julius, and uh, he will become known as the warrior pope and is also like a staunch, staunch defender man. So it's possible he could have been influenced by this Julius, and that's why he chose that name and liked it so much. There is some good stuff here. I'm not feeling him, but I'll still give him like a five. Okay, I was going to give him a six, so I think that's fair. I think an 11 gives him a solid score that puts him on par with Sylvester. And, uh, you know, he actually tried to be actively involved in his councils. So there. Fructus prohibitum. Nada. This is not one of our scandaly Pope men. Are you sure we can't give him, like, a point because the Arians are little... I think we'd be giving points to the Arians for that. <laughs> um, uh, next week. Seculari impactum. I mean, he's got to get some points here for Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> uh, started December for Christmas. Um, I I am going to blame him as well for the Christmas creep, which I hate. The Christmas creep is almost overtaking Halloween now. It shouldn't be that far. And that offends me on such a deep and personal level because anybody who knows anything about me is that I love Halloween. Halloween is the best holiday all year. Christmas, Halloween is where it's at. So the Christmas creep almost taking over Halloween is something I get insanely agitated about. So there's that. Now, for this category, we also have to acknowledge that in this point in time, he did not have much sway over the emperors, which we have seen since Constantine. Even when he had emperors that were sympathetic to his cause, he's not able to dictate to them. So. You know, this is a precedent that existed long before his papacy, and he didn't allow it to get any worse because he's actively fighting to represent the church's authority, but he's not making that any better. I'm going to give him one single point for Christmas because it has an impact, but for me it's not a positive impact, and one for the um, not letting things with the emperor getting any worse. I love Christmas. You can give him points for Christmas moreover i love that liminal space between christmas and new year's where you never know what day it is but i can't give him points for that so i'll give him like two points for christmas and then 
I don't think he really can get anything else. Okay. So he gets A4 for Secularum Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Time to look at this man's face. We have some images today. So here, let's let's rate this man on his usual pictures. Wow. Yeah. That's a... That's a skull with a nose attached. <laughs> you know, the thing that bothers me about this one more than anything is that his beard is painted so softly. So everything below his bottom lip just looks like melted painting. <laughs> it looks like such a mess. I don't know if this is, you know, bad art or whether he had a really gross warbly neck. But I don't like it. I don't like anything about it. <laughs> oh, I see the problem. They painted his face, because you can see the chin. Yeah. And then they painted the beard on. Yeah. But the beard looks like it may have partially come off. And it's, you know, like, the the, the beard hair on his higher cheeks is, is black, whereas everything else is white. Yeah, his mustache is very black. He looks like a smudgy man. <laughs> I don't like it. And he's got the smallest bunny poof. <laughs> it is such a tiny, tiny, tiny bunny poof. So um, he's got the thickest neck. He does, and I don't like it. So he, I'm, <laughs> I'm giving him a one for this. What would you like to oh give God, him? Oh God, can we get him a zero? You can give him a zero. He's Alright, let's give him a zero. This will be, I think, the first, you know, we've given a 0 0.5. He's got real sharp cheekbones. Yeah. Real sallow cheeks. His eyes look like they might be trying to force their way out of the back of his head. Yeah. His neck is huge. His beard is falling off. Yeah. So I think he gets to be the first pope who gets zero for Facium Sanctus. Oh, God. Now, that being said, I have I have another image for you of, of Pope Julius that is so different. Different than what we normally get. So, um, there you go. Oh, you know, that's a very similar individual, like, face-wise. Except Asian? Yeah, he's got a Fu Manchu. <laughs> that is definitely a man of Asian descent rather than Rome. So, um, that's hard to ignore. <laughs> I don't mean that poorly. I would probably rate this picture higher because it's, yeah. it's a lot clearer. It's, it's certainly better done. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That is a glaring error on the part of the artist. <laughs> Uh, all right, and one final one for you. Here is the poor artist who did him like that. Yeah, that's the artist that's never going to improve. He looks really salty, but other than that, I got nothing to add on that one. That was not his category. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he got a zero. Unbelievable. His neck and his face just blend together. It's so bad. He's got... It's a, what, is there a term for, like, a cankle <laughs> with your neck? Oh, if there is, somebody, please, please write in and tell us what it is, because I need that word in my life. N nothing I can think of combining sounds is working. No portmanteaus for me, so... Uh, Oh, let's talk about how long this man was pope for. Tempus Pontificus. 
February 6th, 337, to his death in April 12th, 352, which is 15 years. <laughs> nice. That's a long time. That is so long. We have not seen a pope rule for that long in a long time. So that is a score of 3.75 for him in this category. Good. Good. He needs some points. He does. he... <laughs> His cankle neck. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. It's the cannon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is April 12th. And he is not a patron saint of anything. But considering the way we're talking about him, I imagine we're going to make him one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what would you like to make him a patron saint of? Um, Invoked against Christmas creep. I, I, okay, I will invoke him against that on a regular basis. So when you see me actively and aggressively tweeting about Pope Julius in November, this is why. I like it. Now, his total score is a 19.75. That is decent. Very decent. That puts him in 14th place. Nice. Out of 37 popes, not bad. So now I need to ask you, is he papely enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? Has he made an impression on you for a papal bull? Uh, no, unfortunately. Hmm, yeah, I mean, I understand, mainly because there are some figures who are, are going to make such a colossal impact very soon. And I know that's having some foresight, but we also, looking back, compared to the last person that we gave it to was Marcellinus because he was a mess. Uh, I I was almost a little inclined to give it to him because I really like how hard he fought for everything. I do. And, and there is some value in that. However, I mean, if you had been higgledy-piggledy about it uh, or just not quite sure, I would have been prepared to go to dice roll, but because... You're definitely not feeling it. I think he's got to be a no, which is unfortunate because, Julius, you got to go to purgatory. But that's not the end of our episode because we have a very quick Pope Watch. But before that, I went on Urban Dictionary and all I could find was someone using the phrase cankle neck. <laughs> cankle neck. Well... I think we can do better. Yeah, someone come up with a much better term for that. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. That could be, that. that's the first call to action in our Pope Watch. But now it's time for the real Pope Watch. On the day of recording, something happened today. Uh, I saw a tweet and then I didn't want to look at it, so I didn't. Yay, you're learning. <laughs> <laughs> so, day of recording, today, March 4th of 2019, Pope Francis announced that the Vatican is going to open its archives on the papacy of Pope Pius XII. Ooh. This is the man who was Pope during the Second World War. His papacy was 1939 to 1958. And uh, Pius XII has been a particularly controversial figure since his papacy due to a, a lasting public opinion that he failed to be an effective religious leader during the war, and that he failed to speak out against Nazi atrocity. Terms like moral coward are often associated with him, and he has often been dubbed Hitler's Pope for signing the Reichskonkordat with Germany. 
and maintaining a strictly neutral policy in international affairs at the time. However, some slightly more recent scholarship suggests that Pius XII might have been actively working behind the scenes with underground resistance movements and efforts to help the Jews, so this decision to open the records is widely being celebrated, particularly by Jewish leaders who see it as critical for the Catholic and Jewish relationships, as well as for those who are pushing for the consideration for Pius for sainthood, which is actually a movement that has seen a little bit of progression. So this is interesting. Generally, the Vatican doesn't release archival information for a pope until 70 years after the pontificate has passed, like the end of the pontificate. But these records are going to be made public next year, March 2020. So this is exciting. We are going to get these records before we actually do an episode on him. So yay. Nice. You'll have so much stuff. I will. And uh, as for Pope Francis's comment on why he's doing this, he says, the church is not afraid of history. So this should be really, really interesting. I'm, I'm very excited about this. So, And finally, we have some thank yous to make because we got Patreon people. So absolution of your temporal sins goes to William Tomlinson. Thank you very much. Ego te absolvo. We also need to thank Rex Factor, Totalis Rankium, Saga Thing, Age of Victoria Pod, History of Ancient Greece, uh, all the podcasts that are just helping rep us so much lately. You guys are amazing. It's really, really cool. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we just recently, last week, we hit 60,000 downloads. And uh, today we have passed right by 61,000. So, I mean, progress is being made, and that is really exciting. And we had an amazing... Didn't we, like, hit 60, like, Saturday? Yeah, it was it was recently, like, very recently, where we're, we're kind of going through those tha- the, the milestones of the thousands a lot more quickly than we were expecting to. So that is pretty fantastic. So thank you... If you are listening, if you have listened to one episode or all of them, or if you are like Chris Cree and you are going back through and listening to the podcast again, and this has been super awesome because we're getting tweets of their favorite moments, and it's 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 actually like bringing me back to those first episodes, and I'm laughing at our jokes all over again because that's the kind of nerd I am. So, oh uh, man, I had forgotten like some of those some oh, of the stuff that I say. I just immediately forget yeah she's totally bringing it all back and it's so enjoyable to see that people are having fun with it on their second listen through so super super cool we can be found on most major podcatching platforms including spotify you can find us on twitter and facebook as pontifax pod feel free to message us we usually always respond if you want to send us a more long-form message request or otherwise get a hold of us our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.